The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we give you thanks for the gift of music that enables us to put into such a lyrical and catchy way what is the hope of many of our hearts, that you would be the leader of us, your people, that you would lead us on into deeper trust, into a closer walk, and even when that path leads through challenge and through deep water and through trouble, that you would continue to lead and you would continue to hold us close that your spirit would abide intimately by your gracious work he does indwell us, your people, but that he would be near and intimate and strong and powerful in our lives, drawing us to walk with you. We sing that and we pray that it is our hope. Would you please, Father, accomplish some of that, some drawing on of us, some deepening of us this morning even as we consider the work that you do, that you have done, that you do in your people. And Father, there is, a, there is clearly an element of this that we will consider that is for our good, but we want to say over all of it, the reason that we want to walk with you, the reason that we want to follow you, the reason that we want to know more of you, we want to grow in holiness and likeness to you. Oh, Lord, that you, our Father, that your name would be hallowed, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it should be, as is right. There is much benefit to that, in that for us. Thank you. Thank you. But we do not exist for us. We exist for you. And so we pray that you would draw us on, that you would commission your spirit to move with us closely and strongly, that your name would be honored here in our lives and in the nations that your kingdom would grow within us and around us and into all the nations, that your will would be done by us and in all the nations. So Lord, would you accomplish that, please? And would you this morning move us further along that path towards your accomplishing of it? We have before us a passage this morning, Lord, that talks about your work in us and your grace. I pray, and there are many things that are disordered in my mind right now, and I pray that you would help me to settle on what you once said, that you would say it, that you would press it into the listeners here in this room and elsewhere, perhaps. You would press it into us, that you would speak, that you would shape a people people that is your particular possession, zealous to do good works. So accomplish your purpose here this morning. Grow in us worship. Change us. Do good to us, please. Thank you for the promise that you are a good God and you are a good doing God. Always to us, your people. We don't deserve that, but you have given it, and we say thank you. We pray now that you would speak and give us more still. You've done this because you placed us in Christ, our great God and Savior, whom you sent to save us and to, and to redeem us from lawlessness. And I pray, Lord, that you would now honor his name here and build up us as people. Add to our number, grow us in maturity. 
Thank you. You are a good God. Open your word now to us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Given the irregularity of the holiday season, I want to hold off on finishing the book of Philippians a couple, couple weeks yet. And instead, turn us to a chapter here at the end of Titus chapter 2. Titus is a sh very short book. If you open it up in your Bible, it's probably less than a page and a half. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a man named Titus, who Paul had assigned to work, in, work on the island of Crete amongst churches, working to build them up into maturity. So this is a letter written from Paul to, to Titus, giving him encouragement, giving him direction. Here's what you should do. Here's how you should talk. Here's what you should teach the church. In other words, to us. So we touched on this passage, Titus 2, verses 11 to 14, on Christmas Eve a couple days ago. So we we visited here very briefly, but I wanted to come back to it to look at it in a little more detail to understand more of what God's grace does for us as it has come into the world. Talked about that on Christmas Eve, but I want to look at that a little more uh, closely. We emphasized on Christmas Eve grace that has come to bring salvation, and that is here indeed. But it also, grace, comes to bring sanctification. Sanctification, the growing in holiness, the changing of a Christian to be more like Christ. Both those are in this passage, salvation and sanctification. We'll talk about both of them this morning. And my hope is that as we do, that we would grow in thankfulness to God for His grace and what He does with it in us. And also that we would grow in, in faithful effectiveness, if I can put it like that, faithful effectiveness in the working out of our salvation with fear and trembling, language from Philippians. The working out of our salvation that is by grace. We would grow in, in faithful effectiveness and an understanding of it and the actual doing of it. Growing in Christ-likeness, sanctification. So, I hope we grow in thankfulness and that we actually grow in effectiveness what God is trying to do in His people by grace. So here's my main point that I'm working towards this morning. God both saves and sanctifies His people by grace. Very simple point. God both saves and sanctifies His people by grace. Let me read Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, and then I'll make two observations, one that emphasizes more salvation and one that emphasizes more sanctification. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus 2, 11 to 14. That's the first point I want to make this morning. First observation, the saving grace of God has been revealed for the world in Christ crucified. The saving grace of God has been revealed for the world in Christ crucified. Verse 11 begins, For the grace of God has appeared. And the fact that it begins with the word for tells us something. It, it's not dropping down out of nowhere. It's coming right after verses 1 through 10. A lengthy section, and it's in a sense a, a logical conclusion to or following on logically from what he set up in those verses. So if we look back up into verses 1 and 10 very briefly, we'll see that in verse 1, Paul's talking to Titus, encouraging him to teach what accords with sound doctrine. So Titus is working in churches, and he says, I want you to teach in these various churches what accords with sound doctrine. And then he gives them instruction. 
teach older men and older women and younger women and younger men, and he gives instructions for all those different age groups. Then he comes down to 9 and 10. He says, here's even what you should teach to slaves as they interact with their masters. So that, very end of verse 10, in everything, they may live in such a way that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, adorn it, to, to dress it finely, to give it an appearance of good. And not that it's not good, but to make it seem to be what it actually is, to adorn it. With all their lives, Christians, all Christians, all age groups, men and women, boys and girls, slaves included, are to live in a way that makes the gospel look good. That's a constant point Paul makes, and that's where our passage comes from. For, for, so if we think of the link, we realize Paul's main point here is about how to live in a way that adorns the gospel. So our main focus needs to be on this sanctification, on this living, which is actually the second point. He's speaking to the church, all these different age groups, about how to live, and the focus is going to be on sanctification. I want to talk first about salvation, though. That, that's here. But first thing we should be aware of is that the main, the main focus of Paul is on sanctification. And the second thing we should be aware of from this four, it helps us understand what he means at the end of verse 11, bringing salvation for all people. Paul says, talk to the old men, talk to the old women, talk to the young women, talk to the young men, talk to the slaves about how they should behave before their masters, for God's grace has brought salvation to all. What Paul does not mean is that God has saved every single person. He means all these groups, men, women, old, young, slave-free, all of them. So I'm talking to you, Titus, about all of them. Salvation has come to all of them. A simple way to express that might be to say, all means all without distinction, not all without exception. Let me clarify that. This is important to understand. All without exception would mean every single individual person, without exception. Paul does not mean that. Don't be confused when he says salvation for all people. Not every single person is saved. All without exception would mean every single person. Not, not that. All without distinction. Doesn't matter if you're old or young. Doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. Doesn't matter if you're slave or free. Every person without distinction in the world to every person God's grace has come bringing salvation for all. For you, whether you are a man or a woman, to expand the categories a little bit, whether you are educated or uneducated, whether you are wise or foolish, whether you are black or white or something else, whether you are sick or healthy, whether you are a success or a failure, whether you are horribly ashamed of your sinful past or at the moment are perfectly content with how good you are. All, to all of you, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. God is talking to you. I don't know who you are. 
It doesn't matter who you are or what you have done or where you are or from whence you come, from where you come. At the end, and I mean at the end, when Christ comes in judgment, the Bible is terribly clear that most people will perish. Will perish under the judgment of God. But it will not be because He did not bring salvation near to you and call out to you and say to you, all who are weary and heavy laden, come. He calls out, he, if you will, change the metaphor, He brings the package and puts it on your own doorstep. You, whoever you are, all of you, male, female, young, old, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. To all He says, come. Tragically, most will perish at the end, not because He did not call out to you, He's calling out to you even right now, but because you would not come. Very clearly, very clearly, the Bible lays on your own doorstep the responsibility. He calls to all and invites all to come in grace. He brings salvation right up to you. Grace. You know what grace is? Grace is the giving of that which you do not deserve. The Bible is very clear that every single one of us, without exception, every single person, we are all lawless, lawbreakers, sinners before God, such that in verse 14's language, we would need to be redeemed from slavery, and to use the word salvation, doomed, such that we would need to be saved. All of us. What we deserve is only condemnation, but in grace, the giving of what we don't deserve, in tremendous kindness, God brings up and puts in front of all people, in front of you, a call. Come and live. Many people, you can grow up in this country. You can grow up in this country and not hear that. I think many people do grow up in this country, sit in churches week after week. This church, some other church, I, I don't know, people who visit here from the holidays, I don't know where your home is, what church you go to, if you go to church. But there are people who sit in church week after week after week, tragically. Missing this. God in grace draws up near to people and says, Oh, you need to be saved. You need to be redeemed from all lawlessness. I will put this salvation right in front of you. How? What is it like? Verse 14, talking about Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us. What that language is pointing to is that Christ substituting in in place of me. You, if you would believe Him. It's the language of the cross. That God, when He brings salvation near in grace, what He provides is a substitute sacrifice for you. You would believe. You've heard, you've heard that maybe. Have you ever believed you must. You must. Tragically, people in countless churches all across the land hear it every week and do not believe. The salvation of God in great grace has drawn up near, has been revealed 
has appeared to all of us. Here it is. Trust Him. Surrender yourself to Him and live. It is an offer of great grace. And it is an offer that you cannot refuse. You know what the Godfather meant by that? Some probably men who watched the Godfather. What he meant by that was, it's an offer. You have a decision to make. There are consequences if you make the wrong one. Do not refuse the grace of God. It is an offer. It is gracious. It is kind and merciful and filled with lace from beginning to end with love, laid in front of you, brought near, appearing to all, right here. And if you choose against it, oh, woe is you. Woe is you. Christ came in grace to offer Himself in place of us, to give Himself as a sacrifice for sin to redeem us. That call goes out to you, even you. No one here is beyond the call. No one is beyond the pale. No one doesn't need it. No one can't have it. Trust Christ. But as I said, the main emphasis in the passage is speaking to people who already are Christians. So in a sense, all of that, while real, while in this place, in this passage, it's not the main focus. Titus, Paul, they have churches in view here. And really, he's speaking to the majority of us here who are Christians, and he says to us, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What does it have to do with Christians? Well, of course, it's where we've come from, but I think there's another piece we should think about while we're still considering the saving grace of God that has appeared. When he says, all people, salvation has appeared to all, and he sticks that right in the middle of a lengthy section talking about how we are to live, ask yourself this question. Why, verse 10, does he say Christians should learn to adorn the doctrine of God? Or the words of verse 5, so that the word of God may not be defiled. Or verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Or verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Four times in the previous paragraph, Paul says Christians are to live this way with a view towards others so that they'll look and they'll see and they'll perceive something about the gospel, something about Christians. Why? Is it just so that the Christians will look good? For the grace of God has appeared to all people, bringing salvation to all people. As if Paul says something like this, The grace of God is bringing salvation to all people. Now, I have no idea who in particular God is at work at right now in this place. God is at work in right now in this place. I have no idea who He's calling, whose eyes He's opening, whose 
heart he's working in so that when he says to every single person, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I had no idea who in this moment is feeling weary and heavy laden. Who's feeling the, the prodding of God on that point? But when he said, I do know this, says Paul, that when he says, come to me and you take my yoke on you and you'll find it easy and light, that one of the things that God means to use is a Christian who's wearing that yoke and showing it to be easy and light and good and right. So that when the, the word, the call comes to this person who's not yet a Christian, a promise, he can have a Christian that's, that he can look at and say, it is true. Oh, that could be me. He talks to the church and speaks to us, the church, reminding us, because the Gospels come to all people, you need to live in a way that keeps in mind all around you are all these people who are looking at you to see, is this Gospel true? Is it adorned? Does it look right? Does it look good? Or is there accusation and something shameful in it? Another way I could put it is that we are a living illustration of the truth of the gospel. And we have no idea to whom. Because it's calling everybody. So we are a living illustration to everybody. Always. In all things. That's a high calling. That always in all things, in front of everybody. We are to adorn the, the doctrine of God. We are to live in ways that show no blame. We are to live above reproach. We are to live commendable lives. That's, that's hard. Yes. Which takes us to the second observation. He's really talking about that about sanctification, about growth in a Christian's life. God in grace extends the saving call and really the main point, God in grace works in us to grow us into Christ-likeness. So here's the second observation. The saving grace of God is at work to sanctify us. The saving grace of God is at work to sanctify us. Verse 11, the sentence about the grace of God in verse 12 actually continues on in the same sentence. Some of our English translations punctuate things differently, but it's just the same sentence. So the subject is still the grace. The grace of God has come, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness training in an ongoing, continuing sense. Not, not a one-and-done sense, but in a continuing sense. It has done something. It has been revealed. It has brought salvation. And it is doing something. Training. Which is a little more than just teaching. Now, perhaps how you define the words in your mind, there might be a semantic wrinkle here. But there's a difference between teaching and training. Maybe the difference is classroom teacher and coach. Some of your classroom teachers, and you would say, no, no, I, I teach like that too. Okay. Classroom teaching, perhaps, is more about the dissemination of information. Coaching as I'm using these words, is more about running a player through drills until the taught concept is mastered and executed. A teacher can say, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. A coach can say, 
Extend your arm and flop over the wrist side. You shoot a free throw. But you don't have a free throw shooter yet until you put him on the line and make him shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and train into them free throw shooting. The grace of God is training, not just teaching. We realize that. We see that God in grace has a goal for His people that includes execution, performance. Ooh, that's a bad word. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Performance is fine. We must perform. We must do this, not just know that we should do this. God's about training into his people, pressing into them, performance, execution of. He's training us to renounce ungodliness. Verse 12. Not just to know that ungodliness is bad, but actually to turn away from, to reject it, and to walk a different path. And the training's not done until the renouncing has happened and the new path is embarked upon. To renounce ungodliness, actually to turn away from that and from worldly passions, to put off such things and instead to put on, to live out self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age. He's got two... two Categories, if you will, a, a vertical and a horizontal. He's got godliness. I, I, want to, I want to see a people, says God, trained up in a Godward, a right with God life, and horizontally, a right, self controlled with people life. Both these things. Not one or the other, both. And he's training us towards that. This is so important. When he brings it up again in verse 14, he actually describes this as a goal of the cross. Look at verse 14. Who gave himself Christ, who gave himself for us. And notice what it does not say. Perhaps things we might be more expecting. It does not say, gave himself for us to provide forgiveness of sin. Though, of course, that's what the cross accomplished, indeed. It does not say, who gave himself for us to bring us into fellowship with God. Though, again, gloriously, that is what is accomplished by the cross. But the focus here, in the midst of this passage, following right on verses 1 and 10, who gave himself for us to redeem us, to buy us out from all lawlessness, to free us. Redemption is about freeing. To free us from a bondage to lawlessness, so that we could be a different people, clean, purified for Him, zealous for good works. Paul goes so far in verse 14 as to say that what the cross is about is freeing us from a bondage to walk a path of lawlessness against God, freeing us to be able to be a people clean for Him, zealous for good works. That's what God's about for us, His people, the church. Before God saves us, we are slaves to sin, rebels by nature, and habitually dragged down into rebellion against Him. 
And he does not want that. And so in grace, he sent Christ to pull a people out from the muck, to wipe them clean, and to set them aside pure, so that as he designed from the very beginning, the earth could be filled with a people for his praise. A people who would live to hallow his name, to extend his kingdom, to do his will here like is done in heaven. To fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. God's always been about that. That's why he sent Christ to make that in us now. A lot of words there. You understand that what I'm saying, the cross is a gracious gift from God to make a people holy. God's very concern with your holiness are you. Are you? Are you in pursuit of holiness for yourself and your own family and your kids if you're a parent? Are you in pursuit of holiness? Are you concerned for holiness in the church? We must be. We must be concerned to live self-controlled and godly lives, zealous for good works. Zealous. Zeal. Not just taking them when they come, but strongly pursuing To fully live out that purpose for which God gave God the Son. Holiness, sanctification in his people. He's about that. We must be. And Christian, don't, don't let that like, like fall on you as a burden. Say we we must be, and, and that can fall at holiness, that can fall like oh, righteousness, godliness, that can that can those big words they feel like they might have a weight on them, and I have to be about that. Oh man. Do you realize how good that is? That is the best thing for you and for us. It is wonderful. The only way, the only way that, that those words strike us as burden is if we look at them and say, I don't know how to get there, I, I can't ever get there. Or if we misunderstand what it is. Do you believe, if you're a Christian, I know you do, do you believe that God himself is good and right and loving and pure and beautiful. Yes. So what he's saying is to become like that. What's wrong with that? That would be good. The more I can become, the more, the more growth I, that shows up in my life in the, in the areas of godliness and holiness and self-control and the turning away from worldly passions. If that was more me, that would be a blessing to me and all of you. What I would rub off on you would be delightful rather than disappointing. And you likewise to me. We should say, oh, what a precious and wonderful thing that God gave his son to grow me in holiness, to change me, that he didn't, he's not going to leave me as what I am. That's a good thing, a really good thing. Sometimes, maybe sometimes you, you notice that when in, in moments of disgust you say, there I go again. There's me again. Those are, those are wonderful moments when you realize your sinfulness and, and you are done with it and wish that it could be gone to find out that God is actually at work graciously to train that out of you is a good thing. 
God's really about this. We must be too. And then immediately, we have to add in, and we must be about it in the right way. It is the grace of God that is training us to renounce ungodliness. That's a big point. That's a huge point. The grace of God. He tells us that He is about sanctification, about changing us, about growing us so that we know what He's about. We can pursue that ourselves. And He then tells us how He's doing it so that we can pursue it along that path also and not along the path of strident human effort and not along the path of punishment and law. The law is good, says Paul. The law of God is good. By the law, we know what godliness is. The law is given of God and it is good. Even punishment is good because it puts teeth into the law and it restrains evil. But law and punishment can never accomplish this kind of change because law and punishment cannot get at the root of it, the heart. For that, God graciously, in grace, reaches in, in grace, to change our hearts. How does grace change us? How does grace sanctify us? How does grace train us in holiness? A couple of simple pieces that we need to keep in mind. First one we've already talked about. That he has freed us from lawlessness. He's freed us from bondage, redeemed us from bondage. It's easy to skip by this one, but Christians, you need to, you need to realize this. Sometimes out of our mouths come things like, I just can't forgive him. And while that might have been true before, it's not true now. You've been freed from bondage to sin, and you can forgive him. You can say no to ungodliness. You can reject worldly passions. Is it hard? Uh, yes. Yes, yes, hard. Not impossible. That's an easy one to skip by, but it's, it's a very important one because we, we sometimes use that kind of language as a cop-out. Well, this, it feels so difficult that I, I, just, I just can't do it. No, you can. Come back. God graciously when he saved you, freed you from bondage, he redeemed you out of lawlessness. You're no longer a slave to sin. Its power over you is broken. Now it has great influence, which gets us to the second thing to remember. At the heart, if you don't remember anything else, remember this. At the heart of how God in grace trains us in godliness moves us towards Christ, sanctifies us. At the heart of it is a question of promise. That's what's going on right at the heart of our living out of life, sinfully or righteously. Promise. No longer a slave to sin, what's happening is you've got an enemy who makes you offers. Who seeks to strike deals with you. I will give you. I will deliver to you. Come with me. Here's, here's my offer. Now, it, 
It may seem like there's a little bit of a price to pay in the beginning, but, but what you'll get is, and he rolls out the list, he's making an offer, I'll use the word promise. Come with me, and I will give you. And God in grace, God in grace takes up that very same discussion and says, you, Christian, I have saved you, which means in my saving grace, I delivered you into a spot, into a place. I've given you a standing. You are an heir of a vast household, of a kingdom of unmeasured wealth. So he makes his offer. Great. Let's talk offers. I promise you more. What's he offering? Pleasure? Great. Let's talk, let's talk about pleasure. Think, think this through, Christian. If you don't get anything else, get this. Because this is what's going on in every, for a Christian, you're not a slave to sin, so in every sinful decision, sometimes it's in a moment, what's going on is the weighing of promises. And God's, oh graciously, God's law says, thou shall not, indeed, the law says that, so you know what's right and what's wrong. But God in grace says, I'm eager for this conversation. Let's talk promises of pleasure. What's he offering you? <laughs> Is that it? He has no idea. He, uh, what specifically are we talking about? Ple- sex, sexual pleasure? Let's talk. I'll, let's talk sexual pleasure. Indeed. Let's talk about that. He offers you, sin offers you, a certain degree of sexual pleasure, a certain degree of, of physical feeling, and a certain degree of intimacy and comfort and connection. Sure. Well, on the very question of sexual pleasure, I have more, says God. Who designed that in the first place? Me. I can tell you, I can deliver on all those things in another realm, in another way, in a good time. I deliver sexual pleasure better than he has to offer. And let's talk about what that's really about, real pleasure. I designed that, that he's aping. I designed that to point to some other type of superior pleasure, to point out the intimacy, the feeling, the connection, the naked and not ashamed that comes from you connected to me, walking forever, united with the God who knows your soul and loves you. Let's talk pleasure. And when you sin... To pick this one, sexual pleasure. What you're saying is, I don't believe any of that promise, God. I believe this promise. Oh! Oh! All down the line. You're a Christian. You're not a slave to sin anymore. You sin voluntarily. By taking a crappy deal. And leaving so much on the table. How many of you have sold a house listed for 300000 Somebody comes along and gives you an offer of three hundred five, and you say, I'll take one ten from you. Thank you. Nobody, because that's stupid. <laughs> so sin. That's what's going on at the heart of every challenge, of every sin, every temptation is an offering of promises. And God graciously, the very fact, His saving grace that has moved you into the realm of His pleasure and blessing so that you stand in grace, Christian. That very moving of you into the the realm of His pleasure says, I now pour out on you, I I have a spigot that has an immeasurable amount of water, and I just turn it on and let it run on you. Grace upon grace upon grace, promise upon promise upon promise. It cannot be outgiven. That, that overwhelming of us with goodness, with grace, is how 
God trains us, is how He moves us towards Himself. He buys you off for your good and for His great glory that forever and ever you would say, you are the fountain of good. Everything I have and everything that, that I want and everything I need is found in you. My life has shown it. You have shown it to me. Now, the little illustration about sexual pleasure, I hope, shows that what God is not ultimately about doing is just giving us pleasure in the things, but he's designed all of them to point back to the pleasure that is in him. So everything that he pours out on us out of that spigot, every material good, every circumstantial blessing is designed by God for us to say, oh, you are a good God. Oh, you are, you are good. We lift up our eyes to him, to connect with him, to delight in him and rejoice in him forever. In grace, he woos us to himself with promise. And then in grace, he opens our eyes to understand what's going on in the moment of the offer. To see it. One particular way he does that, verse 13 comes in. It's by speaking to us the truth about this context in which our life is going on right now. If you have an English translation that keeps all of the sentence together, you realize that 13 itself is also not a separate idea. It's part of the same big idea. He's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the greatest of all promises, the blessed hope. This is the context in which your life is happening right now. And this challenge of should I believe this promise, this offer, or should I go with this one, is existing in a context. This all is temporary. And your greatest hope is not that in this moment, in this little decision, oh, that I would find God near and that I would be inclined in my mind to believe Him and not to believe the lie of sin. And therefore, on a Tuesday at 2 o'clock, I would find rest. Ah, good. That is a good and noble goal. That is a temporary and passing goal. Because all of this world is coming to an end. And the greatest hope is that Jesus is coming back to make it all new. That Christian must capture your mind. Because sometimes the choice on Tuesday afternoon is not going to feel very delightful. Sometimes to choose against the worldly passion and towards godliness is going to bring more pain. How do you do that? Well, you see that choice on Tuesday afternoon in the larger context of, I am waiting for something. Not Tuesday and not even Wednesday and not even for my boss to finally see that I did do the good thing when I was honest and to promote me. No, that may never happen. I'm waiting for something else, something bigger and larger that Jesus, the great God, the great God, Jesus, He is God Almighty and He is the Savior and He is coming. He will appear and bring with Him glory. God graciously gives us eyes to see the wisdom of His ways now. And He graciously gives us eyes to see 
the folly and sometimes the pain associated with choosing the path of sin. That is, that is grace. But above that, God graciously presses into us, deepens in us, strengthens the conviction that this momentary life is, as the Bible says, in fact, momentary. It's almost gone. I can look across, I see some young, some old, some, some of you are feeling like it's closer to the end than some of us. Who knows? It is a gracious and good thing for God to press into us a sense of the larger context to give us conviction that all of the light and momentary afflictions that we face now, even when they are not resolved now, are in fact gaining for us an eternal weight of glory realized only when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus comes. And He is coming. Christian, God is about growing us, His people, towards Him in Christ-likeness, sanctifying us, making us holy. He does that by grace, by freeing us from slavery, extending to us not a whip, but a promise. And then opening our eyes to see the beauty of the promise and the context of His coming return. That's how God, by grace, grows you. And then how we, by grace, should help others. Those around us. Those in our houses. If you're a parent. Kids. very easy to mess up kids. How many Christian parents will hear this sermon and say, I get that, I understand that, I mean, I'm so thankful for that. And then, if you're honest, you turn and look at how you parent and you see, I mostly parent by punishment towards outward behavior. Hmm. I'm not actually growing kids towards Christ by grace. I'm not actually preaching to them the promises and praying that God would open their eyes to the truth. I'm enforcing behavior. Not that the behavior's wrong, but it can't change the heart. God grows us by grace towards Him and means for us to by grace or our kids, or our friends, or our church towards Him. He saves by grace, and He sanctifies by grace. Blessed be His holy name. Let me pray. Lord, You are kind to save us, and kind to grow us, And though you are a God of, of limitless power, I am so thankful that you save and then grow us in promise by love. Thank you. And I pray that you would produce in us thankfulness for this and actual growth. Would you please conform us, your people, to you? Would you please cause us to believe you and from belief obey you? 
And then, Lord, help us as we interact with many other people, and I particularly think of parents here, interact with kids, teenagers and, and young babies alike. Do we interact with them and try to help them understand you and try to point them towards you? Would you help us to know and preach promise and pray for eye-opening grace? Lord, shape your people. Grow us in holiness. Thank you for your commitment to do that. To never give up on us until it's accomplished. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.